production. BJ Miller is a palliative care doctor who helps patients face their own deaths realistically, comfortably and on their own terms. BJ's passion for palliative care stems from his personal experience. An accident whilst at university saw him tragically lose three limbs and nearly killed him. BJ reminds us to bear witness to the complexity of the human experience whilst noticing the small truths and surprises in life. BJ says, my job is not to tell you something, my job is to help you receive something. In this intimate conversation, BJ and I discuss what it means to live a good life and die a good death, the darkness of suffering and the regrets of those who are dying. One way or another, it does come down to love. Regrets usually have to do with someone that they didn't let themselves love or a piece of themselves that they didn't let see the light of day that they treated life too preciously, not realizing that all of life was precious, that it couldn't escape the preciousness of it. And whatever they chose to do was gonna be okay. Spent too much time in the fear zone, one way or another. That's one of those major conclusions you bump up against a lot. No one regrets the love. People only regret not letting the love in. I'm Sarah Grimberg. And this is a life of greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. BJ Miller is the author of the best-selling book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. He also runs his own palliative care centre, Metal Health. In this episode, you will learn why accepting death as a reality can liberate you to live a better life now. BJ Miller, your relationship with death began at an early age when you were 19 years old. Mm. Can you take us through... What happened that that day? Yeah, happy to. Coming up on my 30th anniversary of that, it was November 27th, 1990. It was, uh, a soft, I was a sophomore, second year in college. And uh, friends of mine and I, we just were out on the town. It was a Monday night. It wasn't, we weren't out going crazy. We were just out and having a little bit of fun. And then walking to get a sandwich at the 24-hour shop. And there happens to be a little train, a commuter train that runs on campus, right on the edge of campus. Where I went to college is a commuter community. So people commuting to New York and Philly. Anyway, the train was just sitting there, not operating. It was just, we just climbed, we decided to climb it like you'd climb a tree. You know, it didn't seem very daring. It wasn't moving, you know, just sitting there. But uh, anyway, I, I climbed up on top of the train and it happens to be one that electrified from overhead. The wires are, are run overhead. And so when I stood up, I had a metal watch on my left wrist. And when I stood up, the electricity arced to the metal watch. Um, so, and that was that. So big explosion. And, and then I got uh, se- you know, severe burns, enough that re- required amputations of both legs below the knee and then my one arm below the elbow. And so, yeah, that, that, that was that, 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 that was months in the hospital and all that good stuff and a long time to recover. Um, 
but that 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 turned me on to medicine, and it has a lot to do with how the choices I've made since then. Let's just say that. After that happened, and you're in hospital, and you wake up from from obviously heavy sedation, mm-hmm. what what do you think when you're in that state? Mm. You know, I don't. It's like remembering a dream. You know, a lot of it is pretty fuzzy, but I remember um, early on not being surprised. You know, I was, I remember having a conversation with the surgeon the night before the first amputations, you know, it was about a week in before they, you're stable enough to do surgery. Um, and I just remember talking to the surgeon and him, you know, breaking the news to me in his mind that I was going to lose at that point, at least my legs. And I just remember the, the sensation of not, of, of sort of knowing that and, and not, not because I'm so smart or something. It's just more like you had, I sort of had some internal sense of what was going on, I think. Um, and I don't know if it was the opiates or, or an, a certain attitude. I don't know what it was, but at the time I just remember not being particularly phased by that fact. It was just seemed like it was matter of fact. And I, it was really a process over many months and years of, of, waking up to the reality of this situation. It took a while for it to set in on some level. And on another level, it feels like I say, like I had some deep internal knowing, A, that I was going to lose some body parts and B, that I was going to survive. I didn't worry about that I was going to die. I didn't, I don't know. It's, it's a strange, I don't know how to put it. But once past, I mean, once past the initial kind of, realization and internalization of the facts of my situation. I do remember, you know, maybe a month or two in beginning the process of thinking about who am I now? Like, what am I, what's my life going to look like? You know, am I going to get laid again? Am I going to, what are my friends going to do? I don't, you know, just everything, you know, I don't know, just like everything was sort of, you begin to question everything. Like you're starting a new life. Like I'm in a new body in a new life. Um, And that was a, that was wild because I, I, part of me was intrigued. I can remember feeling kind of curious about it. And I think, I think a, my story has a lot to do with a lot of other people, the people who cared for me, the nurses and doctors and the techs, but also my family and my friends. And they had so much to do with my experience and, and how it became less than terrifying and then, you know, my mother is, is disabled from polio, Sarah. So she, I grew up around disability my whole life. And so on some level, I think that's why I wasn't so surprised. I, I, I knew that disability didn't mean that you no longer were a human being or, you know, that you, you knew, I knew in my bones that I could still belong on this earth, even if I was missing some parts. So that has a lot to do with my upbringing and my mother's example. Um, but slowly I woke up with, to the curiosity of, of what I could turn this into. You said when you had to have the amputations that now your body fit you. Mm. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I, I'm one of those white guys. I'm like a white guy, male, hyper-educated. You know, on paper, I had a lot going for me. I came from a, a nice family. You know, I went to good schools, all that stuff. You know, I, on paper, I had a really pretty ideal life. Um. And, but I internally, I didn't, that's not the way I felt. I was a very melancholy child. I was very sensitive and 
I felt a lot of pain, whether it was my own or others. Uh, I had danced around with, I just, it was a melancholy child. It was just kind of a moody child. And so, but that moody sort of touching in on suffering internal didn't match my external life. I, I was, I should have been a very happy person, but I really wasn't. So that's what I mean. I felt broken or you know, that there were some holes in there inside. And so when my body looked a little broken and full of holes, that's, you know, that then all of a sudden my inner and outer lives matched up a little bit better. Um, and it felt kind of appropriate in some way. And it also affected how I was treated by people. People finally gave me some space and some credit. Whereas before that, you know, oh, well, you're just a, you're just a white rich guy who went to an Ivy League school. So, you know, what do you know? Um, about suffering, about pain, et cetera. And now, now people finally gave me some credit or some space around it. You cried when you left the Burns unit. Yeah, yeah. Why was it so emotional? Uh, it's such a, I'm glad you bring that up, Sarah. It's a really, because I think it just helps people understand that it's not like you'd think that you know, getting out of the hospital, A, that means you're going to survive. You know, you're through, you're out of the woods and you get to go out and eat real food and see your friends and do it, you know, that should be such good news, you know, and on some level it really was, of course, good news, but it's mixed. I mean, I see this in my patients now, folks who get the diagnosis, you know, of, of remission, like their cancer has gone away and people are telling them they're supposed to be celebrating, but they don't feel like celebrating or, I see people who, you know, we all kind of assume that death is this horrible thing that no one wants to have happen. But in fact, it can be a beautiful thing that most of us eventually do want to have happen. So it's just, it just, I, I like this story because it flips things on its ear. But specifically, I cried that day because I was two and a half months, almost three months in this burn unit, this hyper specialized little world. And I knew everybody and everyone knew me. And this, these are the people I was, you know, in this way, I was born again around. I was, my new life started with these people. These people had saved my life, had loved me when I felt unlovable or wondered whether I was lovable, touched me when I thought my body was disgusting. You know, all this, there was just a lot of love mixed in with all that pain in there. And this, these, these guys felt like family to me. And so when I was leaving, I felt I was leaving the womb. I was leaving a cocoon, a safe, sheltered place where I knew I belonged and I was going out into a world I wasn't sure I belonged in. Did you ever look back and think, woe is me, why has this happened? What did I do in mm. my life to, to, for this horrible incident to have occurred? Mm. Not much really, actually. You know, I'm more prone to say, why not me? You know, I'm um, like, yeah, shit happens. Mm. People get sick. People, and I was aware that all sorts of horrible things happen to very good people. So no, I didn't. And again, that childhood of feeling out of sync and out of match, not matching up with my external life and my circumstances. So for all of those reasons, no, I was much more primed to say, why not me? Um, and I didn't spend a lot of time. I didn't spend a lot of time in bitterness or, or recrimination or blame around how this had happened. Um, I certainly had, had moments of feeling terribly lost and confused and unsure and lots of pain. You know, I don't, I want to be very clear. This is not a fun experience. There was a lot of, 
horror to it. But on the list of horrors was not, was not a lot of time spent in the why me zone. And you then went from studying art history to studying medicine. Mm-hmm. What made you want to do that? Well, the surprise in that story, Sarah, was more that I just studied art history. I had before my injuries, I had never, I had never, I, I loved music. I had been around the arts, but I, I had not considered a studying art history before my injuries. I was heading for a major in East Asian studies in Chinese language. But being away, being in the hospital, being out and revisiting all the assumptions of my life, questioning what my life was going to be about now, uh, who was I, you know, questions about identity and how to use these experiences, how to get through them, how to use them, how to work with my life, how to not hate my life, Mm. how to not hate myself. This is the stuff I was thinking about. And so sitting in that hospital bed, I mean, you're bored stiff, but I found myself in conversation with an old friend who was studying art. And we just got to conversations that were very philosophical in nature, but really about why humans do the things they do. Namely, why do they create from their experiences? Why do, they, why do we make art? Why do human beings make art? It's a huge, beautiful question. And in that question, somewhere I felt like there was some answers for me. You know, like here I was trying to deal with the world with a bunch of stuff that I didn't want, but I had to deal with nonetheless. And it feels like that's a, a variation on a theme that we all ex- experience. And I watch artists take that material of their life and make something of it. And that general gist really spoke to me. So that's why I studied art history was to kind of see if any of the artists would rub off on me that I could apply a creative lens to my own life. And it was a really good hunch, man. I really, I got very lucky in a lot of ways, but that one I'll take some credit for. That was a, I'm very proud of that decision because it didn't, I couldn't articulate why I wanted to do it and it didn't make a lot of sense and I didn't see a future in it, but it felt like the right thing. And it very much was. In a nutshell, I learned by studying art, I learned how to see, I learned how to look at the world and I learned how to look at myself. And that was huge. So the bigger, so that's the big shift. And then from there to medicine was, well, mm, you know, I didn't, I loved art too much to make, try to make a living from it. Uh, I, I flirted with the idea of working in a museum and stuff like in an art gallery, but it didn't really light up for me. So I was trying to figure out how I could parlay these experiences as a patient, as a disabled person, as someone who was trying to heal himself or be healed or be whole in, the, in this world. And that, you know, where could I apply those things? You know, in the, in the world of disability, very often we talk about overcoming their disability as though you somehow get behind it or be beyond it, like where you no longer... If I overcame my disability, ostensibly, I no longer was affected by my disability. Mm. And of course, that's not possible. It's just so intrinsic to who I am. It's not something I can put behind me. So um, the sort of that, that kind of thinking, I don't want like, how can I use this? How can I work with this, not forget it? Um, and medicine lit up as a way to do that. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll try medicine. And I didn't know if I would like it. Um, or if I could do it. And that was the deal I made with myself. I didn't know what else I wanted to do to make a living. It's not like I was, there were competing ideas. This seemed like a good idea. I said, well, okay, I'll try it. Either I can do it and then I won't, or I'll hate it and I'll promise myself I'll stop. Because I'm not, I, I, having come back from brink of death, I wasn't about to sign up for a, a willful sacrifice like that, just sacrificing my life, doing something I hated. So off I went and down the road, I went and studied medicine until 
deep into senior year of med school, I was going to, I, I became disillusioned with it. My sister had passed away and all this stuff happened and I was going to drop it. Um, and then I came across hospice and palliative medicine and fell deeply in love with it. And, and off I went. What about hospice and palliative care? Did you fall so deeply in love with? Mm. Well, a couple of things. One was that it was about, you know, I'm very, I was very, am, was very interested in what human beings do when they come up against something that they can't control or can't change. That's where humans get really interesting to me. And obviously that was a place I, I, was, I was inhabiting and knew very well. And so in palliative medicine, it's not, you know, it's like, what, what do we do with folks when we can't cure them and we can't fix them? Well, that's when we call in palliative care. That's where palliative care really shines. You know, it's how do people adapt to things that they can't change, that they can't fix, that they can't cure. So that, that was deeply in, in, interesting to me. Mm. Um, that's one big point. The second big point was that it's all the subjective plane. I'm not really interested in objectivity. Like I'm interested in our weird subjective inner experiences um, and how sometimes they approximate the norm or the standard or the healthy person. And plenty of times they have nothing to do. You know, you're off in our own little worlds being, you know, I mean, life is very weird. I think of it as a very strange endeavor. And so to embrace the subjective experience was really inspiring to me and very and, and endlessly fascinating. And then another huge piece was that I had come to terms with my own sense of belonging in the world in part through my own suffering, I felt like there was currency that I had touched a, touched a wire, deep, deep, deep wire that I was playing with life or death. And I was aware of my suffering. I was aware of the learning that I was, while I could learn from my suffering, I was deeply aware of our ephemeral nature that we, we die. And that I was starting to see not as such, those are not scary things as much as connecting forces. They're what, you know, you and I, here we are thousands of miles apart from each other. This, we have this in common. I, right, I can start talking to you in two seconds because I know we've got, we have a shared condition in this world. So it's a huge link across language, across culture, across wealth, whatever it is, we have that in common. So to work on a subject that affects literally everyone is just awesome to me. Like it's the least exotic, the least esoteric subject uh, imaginable. And so that was also very interesting. What has being around the dying taught you about living? Well, one is just to really let it into your consciousness that you do that we die. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, we actually have to be reminded of that these days, in particular. Not only that we die, but that's okay. It's it's okay. It's you. That's part of the deal, you know. So, so I've learned from the dying yet that it happens. That no one's going to get out, and that it's and it's not a failing. It's not like, you know, our language suggests like, oh, they lost his battle with heart disease. Well, no, you don't, you're implying like, not only does that poor guy have to die now, he's got to be a loser. You know, like, no, it's not fucking, lo like, you didn't lose anything. This is nature happening, you know? It's normal, it's real, it happens to everybody. So I can't say enough about that. It seems almost silly to say, but I think we really do need to remind ourselves that we die, that it happens and it's okay. So that's a big one. Um, but beyond that, I think also it helps me to kind of craft this worldview 
that incorporates uh, having a kind of a love in this world that allows for both life and death, that, that, that life and death are two halves of a whole. I think in the States anyway, in the West, I think we talk about death as this thing that robs us of life. It's this, this thief that comes in and steals life from us. That's not accurate. It is entirely entwined with life. You don't get one without the other. And that is a very helpful frame of reference. So you don't feel at odds with your nature. So you don't feel at odds with your life. Um, So that's a big, big one. And then part and parcel, working with people who are close to the end, they help me get past any pat answers, like any the way we separate ourselves from each other and distinguish ourselves from say the things that we are, I say the things that we're not. And we build these identities for ourselves that can be very isolating. And so being around dying people will help you realize that, no, no, you, you, you can't surgically remove parts of yourself. Well, you can surgically remove parts of yourself, but you can't, not of your persona, not of your personality, not of the life force in you. So I guess my point here is like, that it's like an anti-reductive force. Anytime I find myself with too convenient an answer to a problem in this world where somebody is excluded or some parts of myself are excluded, I know I've done some, I'm I'm, I'm become the reducer. I'm the reductive force. Medicine does this all the time. In fact, life is huge and gorgeous and scary and enormous and way beyond our words, right? Right. We're the ones who ram it into words. We're the ones who ram it into these, these shapes that we can deal with. So dying helps me push back on that reduction and expand into the universe in a way. Mm. But those are, those are a, a handful of things. And then, and then one more thing, Sarah, that I really appreciate about being around the subject of mortality is that it really helps me appreciate the body, the material world. Mm. It helps me love the body. The body's the thing that dies. So I... I should really spend some time with it while I have it. And then, you know, it helps me appreciate what I have while I have it. That's so much the key. I think most of us, myself included, are very good at appreciating something right when I'm losing it. Why, why, do, we, why do we wait? Do you live your life differently after working in palliative care? Yeah, I think in some degree, to some degree I do. I think in a lot of ways I'm the same person pre and post accident on the same person, pre and post this career choice. Um, and so in some ways there's a through line under all that. But above that, yeah, I mean, I, I, the conversation we're having right now, I live, I live this conversation. It's not an mm-hmm. academic one or an interesting one. It's a daily practice. By showing up and doing my job, I am practicing on myself too because I'm, we're all in this same boat. So it's a beautifully efficient work in a way. Working on self, working on other is all entwined in this work. And I, that's, that's what a gift that is. So I'm different in the ways we're talking about now. I might have, I don't quite as easily forget that we're ephemeral. I don't quite as easily forget that we're the ones who separate ourselves from each other. I don't easily, quite easily forget to, to notice beauty when I come upon it. That kind of thing. Mm. But otherwise, there's much, much has not changed otherwise. How do you view suffering? For me, I like, the definition I use is that suffering is, is a gap or a, a wedge 
this space that opens up in me that separates me myself um and it's this this gap that opens up between the world or the reality i have and the world or reality that i wish for you know and that's those are two sides of the gap and so we can i can i like that definition because it gives me my responses i can close that gap by changing my reality and that's a amazing and powerful response um, it just isn't always possible. On the other side, you can, like in a more sort of Buddhist or contemplative way, you can say, well, quit, <laughs> no, work on myself internally to say, no, quit wishing for things I don't have. Mm-hmm. You know, that, so either of those two ways will allow me to n- close this gap that opens up in myself that we call suffering. So that's how I like to define it. I mean, there are f- folks in my field who define it as a threat to my identity or a threat to the sense of self. Um, some people call it total pain, you know, social, spiritual, physical pain. I like my gap definition. Though. I think the Buddha said a life of attachment, when you have attachment is when you suffer. And if you can have a life without attachment is when suffering ceases. Mm. How do you deal with people in your line of work who are suffering? Mm. Well, I mean, the, the technique that I've ever learned is for starters, I just get to know them. Mm. You know, we don't even, may not even talk about the, the, their suffering per se for a few visits. We just get to know each other. In part, that's, that's just a way to gain trust and, ex- and, and, and create safety so that people can come out of their shells, so that they can divulge intimate truths about themselves and fears. Um, so part of it is sort of uh, casting a sort of tone and a, and a nice big stage to play on. But it's also true that that's a therapeutic in of itself. One thing that comes up again and again is that the, the beauty of actually seeing somebody, of, of bearing witness is the fancy phrase for this. So if I get to know you, Sarah, if I can just see you and whatever, and drop all the adjectives, good, bad, tall, short, whatever, just drop, just whoever you are and drop all the judgment and just see, really mm-hmm. see you. And it's a gorgeous thing that we humans can do for each other. I hope all of us have an experience where we're truly seen and not judged, you know, just even for a moment before we die. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. So that's a lot of the work really is just, is just seeing somebody. Um, so that's, those are some answers to your question. But of course, there's more specific stuff too and just getting down to the root, like what's causing this person to be at odds with themselves, to be at odds with their reality and going into that, not running away from like head into that zone, go where the fear is, go where the pain is. That's a big piece of this puzzle too. Um, and then I think the last general thing to say about that is, uh, is helping Others helping patients and families understand that, you know, one way or another, shame creeps in so easily. Mm. Being ashamed to be to when your body is failing you and to be ashamed to be sick, to be ashamed to be a burden to each other. This is the biggest fear in the U.S. around dying is that people don't want to be a burden to their loved ones. One way or another, I have to find find a way with families and patients to reorient around these notions. Like independence 
is not real. There's no independence doesn't exist. There's never been a person who doesn't need anything from anybody. We are we we need each other, and it's not a burden to need each other. That's normal. It's natural. So so much of my job very often is of finding a way to help them reframe the way they're looking at themselves in this situation, and that can help extinguish the suffering too. If they if we can drop the shame, the embarrassment, the feeling of a, being a burden, etc. And a lot of that has to do with just processing the emotions and talking things through, and continuing to show up for each other and not run away from people when they get ugly. How do you deal with your patients who are scared to die? Mm. Well, one thing I've learned is, you know, I, on some level, it's sort of like this bigger relationship to suffering. We could say, I think earlier on, I would have said, well, my job is to help root out suffering and we're going to, you know, end suffering in a way. Um, that may be a wonderful aspiration, I don't see it happening anytime soon. And instead, I think it's really important to sort of ferret out the unnecessary suffering, the, the shit we heap on each other, like I've been talking, the shaming, all that, the blame, all that junk, the way we just make hard situations even harder. That stuff needs to be rooted out. That stuff needs to be solved for. But the native suffering that's just inherent to being a human being on this planet with an imagination you know, so we can always picture a world better than the one we have. That means we're set up to suffer and suffering is an endemic, natural human piece of the puzzle. I mean, what's the first thing a baby does when it comes out of the womb? It wails. It's, you know, suffering is your entry into the world. You know, there's, a, there's a piece of suffering mm-hmm. that I can't change and, and wouldn't change because we, we learn too much from it. So I find it very useful to discern those two. Let's if I'm working with a patient or family, let's see about the suffering that we can solve for, correct, or weed out. Then the rest is coming to terms with the suffering that just has to be. And how do they sit with that? How do they be with that and not run away? So leading up into your question, now, sir, about fear, if someone's afraid to die, well, for one, like this idea about suffering, my job is to help them sit with fear. I don't know that I can help anyone be fearless. You know, fear is a pretty basic emotion, a basic human emotion. I don't think we get to live without it. Mm. Um, rather, I think the, the bigger trick is to learning to live with it and not be consumed by it. So working with people over time, um, we can get them in relationship to that fear where they can see it for what it is, learn from it what they can, but they can also see around it and over it and through it. It's not the whole thing. It's not occluding their view of, of life. So that's that's the deal. That's my job is to help people live with things, not necessarily uh, uh, excise them. I know that in your early years of med work and maybe doing palliative care, you spent time with children who were dying. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's like a whole different level of anything. I mean, when a child dies, it's just one of the most horrendous things. Yeah. How did you sit with kids that were dying? Well, they guided me, really. I mean, the kids, in my experience, I haven't done a ton of work with kids uh, in pediatric hospice. In the medical world, the adults in the pediatric worlds are, are pretty separate. But the, the, the work I have done in pediatric hospice um, the kids, man, you know, <laughs> in some ways we learn to make dying very hard. Mm. Uh, kids are born with a much more fluid 
sense of self, fluid relationship to the world around them. They're of, they're in the world. They're of the world. They're not sitting back and reflecting on it. There hasn't been time for all this ego structure to set up. It hasn't been time to accumulate all these cues of identity. You know, I am this, I am not that kind of stuff. And so when dying comes along and it threatens that ego, there's not, they don't, they're already rolling with all sorts of stuff. Nothing's set up in concrete yet. Mm. So in my little experience, and I'm sure there, there's, this is a painting too broad, too big a brush, but for the most part with kids, they're the ones teaching us how to be with things that they, they don't have the same need for control or the same, they haven't been seduced into thinking they can control everything. And so really the harder part of pediatric hospice is dealing with the poor parents uh, who have to, who have to, who have to, who have to force this issue with a dying ch- child. That's where so much of the work is. The kids, I think in general, <laughs> they have a lot to teach us. Um, so, so that's one statement in, in terms of how I, how do I sit with them? How would I be with them? Basically just play, mm. you know, life just, this is another day in their life. They don't know any differently. So it's not like a departure from something. This is their life. They're not sitting there suffering, thinking that they were alive and this yanked them out of their life. And this, this is their life. Yes. So you give the, you have the same emotional range. You get to play. It's just, it's just a much more fluid zone and you're not freaked out when tears come and tears can coexist right next to smiles. And it's just all this big, beautiful pile. When you're sitting there, you know, one-on-one with a patient that's dying and that intimate relationship that you must form with them, like a beautiful relationship, you're one of the last people that they're with. Mm -hmm. It's such a special thing. What do you find are the things that, that when they reflect on their life Mm -hmm. that they talk about with you? Yeah. Well, I tell you, it ranges. And very often, often enough, you know, what, one of the, the little things become very important. And so it's not like you're visiting some, this, some mountaintop that's removed from life. If you're doing your job well and if things are in order, just like we were saying about the kids, you're in, flow, in a flow state. And so you'll mm-hmm. move. There's this very sacred, profound comments and moments right next to these incredibly mundane ones too. It's just all this sweet, again, this little sweet pile. We're not, you know, so they're talking to me very often about, they're still wondering who won the baseball game or they're, you know, it's still just basic stuff that can occupy a daily life with anyone. Sometimes now when we'll break through those things and get to the more profound stuff, you know, very eventually we invariably we find a way to reflect on regrets, you know, and reflect on things that they've learned and ways they've changed and surprises they've experienced over the course of their illness. And that can it can be a usually a very beautiful conversation. Again, it's not painless, it can be filled with tears, but it can be remarkable because as they recount all those experiences just by being able to recount them, they're more than those experiences too. They're in touch with a piece of life that's bigger than any one little moment. And I get to be in that place with them. And in terms of like what they reflect on around regrets, I think it's generally true. They're not, you don't hear a lot of people regretting that they didn't go to the office that uh, one more day or work harder. Um, in one way or another, it does come down to love mm. uh, one way or another, you know, and, regrets usually have to do with someone that they didn't let themselves love or a piece of themselves that they didn't let see the light of day, Um, that they treated life too preciously 
not realizing that all of life was precious, that it couldn't escape the preciousness of it. And whatever they chose to do was going to be okay. Spent too much time in the fear zone one way or another. That's, that's one of those major conclusions you bump up against a lot. No one regrets the love. People only regret not letting the love in. People only regret living by fear. Um, and I'll say one more thing about the love thing. The one thing I've come to with patience, but also in myself, is to come to realize how we're, many of us can be pretty good at loving some loving. Mm. Being loved, the other direction, is really yeah. very difficult. Um, and I've, I've watched that struggle in people towards the end of life because they're taking on more dependency. They need more help, et cetera. And it may be the first time in their life that they actually learn to receive, like really learn to be dependent on someone. And, and just glimpsing, not the tragedy of that, but the grace of that. Mm. Uh, and that could be really, really tender and beautiful. Mm. Yeah. How has that made you put more love or change the way that you view love in your life? Well, it definitely helps me realize that I, if I think I'm being real strong by not needing anything from people, if I think I'm being really strong by not needing to be loved, by just, I'm a loving machine. I don't need any love. Like this, this attitude's all over medicine. Like I don't need care. I'm a doctor. I don't sleep. I don't, I don't eat. I stay up 72 hours. I'm a caring machine. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work because you're a human being. And so, so I have, I have stopped hiding between these faux strengths, these false strengths that I don't need anything. I don't need like, and turning my attention to actually letting myself try to let love in the other direction, let myself actually need people, let myself, because I've done that dance. I remember that dance, but I talk, I've, ta- I've re-entered the other world where I've talked myself out of needing things from people. And so for me, the, much of the work is, is like I'm describing in these patients, like learning to actually be loved. And BJ, being the human being that you are and having the Mm -hmm. job that you have, Mm -hmm. as beautiful as it is, it's also so tragically quite sad because you're watching people die. How do you deal with that in your everyday life? Well, for one, when I I want to, so let me define, like for me, beauty is, is it's not an easy beauty. This is what we're talking about. Yeah, there's, there's a ton of pain that doesn't get, doesn't get met, relationships that don't get reconciled, patients that shoot me as the messenger of bad news. I mean, it's not, it's not a cakewalk. It's not a pretty thing very often. So when I say the beauty, when I say the word beautiful, what I mean is a, it's a deep truth to it. Mm. Like it is, it's, it's some, a beautiful thing to me is, is that thing being itself. Even if that thing is a turd, it's being a turd, it's being a pain, it's being whatever it is, full-throatedly. So that's what I mean by beauty. It's like this deeply truthful place. And deeply truthful places are hard. We barricade against all sorts of truths. So, so I just want to clarify that. And then, but to your question, you know, how do I, 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 for me, I keep changing the nature of my job. I found that being full-time clinician and being with people at the bedside all the time was too much. I couldn't keep a sense of perspective. So I've moved into more, I, my job has morphed into doing more teaching and more education, more public engagement, still time at the bedside, but I've changed up my ratios a little bit. That's been very, very important for me. 
And then, uh, but more to the point, in sort of a daily way, is spending time with beyond words with my animals. I live with two cats and a dog. Uh, I just touching, being in contact with the big nature, with the world beyond just my friends and other human beings. Being outside, uh, feeling for me the aesthetic domain, feeling things, letting myself actually touch, and the world of the senses to me is a very healing place. It's sort of a pre-verbal place where I can just feel things. I don't need to put them into a big story. I can just feel something. That to me is where I reset, mm. and that's very often outside in a non-verbal way with animals. You touched on something just then, which yep. I feel is so profound, and it's truth being truthful, how important do you think it is from the patients that you've seen, from the life that you've lived to live a life that is true to yourself? Mm. I don't know if there's anything more important than that. Not just for what you will experience yourself getting to your truth, but I think it's one of the nicest things we can do for one another. If someone's living the, their, a truthful life, it's, they can become a light. You know, It's one of the greatest in terms of if, if you want to be altruistic. If you want to be a kind, giving person, you know, being truthful is one of the surest ways. Truthful with yourself is one of the mm. surest ways to achieve that. So this idea of it being self, so selfless, selfish, that stuff can fall away. Um, when you're in the zone of deep truths, that's a zone we tend to all, it's a place we, we all have within us. It's a place we can share. And it's a very hard place to access. And it's a very hard place to set up a tent at. You know, I, I can touch on my truths, but I often will ping out of them real quickly from habit through distraction, whatever it is. So I don't know. I can't think of anything. I'm not sure I could think of anything more important, Sarah, than pursuing your own truth, whatever the hell that is. I'm not sure what mine is. I'm, it's, like a, it's almost like the American Constitution, the pursuit of happiness is more important than happiness itself, yeah. whatever that is. When you've been with the dying, which you've obviously been with a lot more than the average person, mm-hmm. when the person is actually dying, so I'm saying like mm-hmm. the, the last few breaths, what, is, there, is there something similar that you notice with every person? Is there an energy that's different? Is there a soul leaving the body? Mm. What do you notice? What's really interesting in my experience, um, I mean, visually, and folks who are at the very end of life, especially after a long bout of illness, you know, they, they will look very different. You know, a lot of muscle wasting, yellow jaundiced skin, all sorts of things that, you know, on, you might look very different from a person walking around on an average day. But that zone, that, that, that distinction kind of, you know, that disappears pretty quickly. It's what's really interesting. I've been in the room many times where with family, we're talking, the patient's there, we're all together. And the, par- the patient in the bed dies. And it takes us a while to even notice. And I say that it's not because we're being cruel or distracted or not paying attention. It's just, it can be almost this, the, the scene between living and dying can be so subtle. Mm. That's the, that's the stunning thing in my estimation. So in some ways, the answer is you don't notice much of a difference. And that's kind of telling. And that's kind of amazing. Um, very often, though, in that last breath, and then you'll see family walk kind of, or nurses, whoever's around will look at each other like, is, is he or she gone? And you're not even sure. It takes a moment. You got to check for breath. Sometimes there's a last gasp. There's an apneic breathing, which is these long pauses. So you might think someone's gone and they're mm. still there. I mean... 
it's just trippy how I love hanging out these and these these liminal zones, these moments of contrast, like at the end of a life and the beginning of death. Because when you hang out at those lines, you realize how porous they are. You know, you, and if you hang out at the bedside of dying people very often, you'll see over the course of hours and days, the feeling of them crossing over and coming back. They feel like they're gone, then they're not. And it's, it's again, it's just a brilliantly subtle line. <laughs> that to me is kind of stunning. For the people that have maybe gone between, mm-hmm. have they said anything similar? Is there something that you have heard that they've said that seems to be in alignment of where where we may go when we die? Well, in talking with people who have had near-death experiences, folks who by some measure did die and came back, it's interesting that those stories are very consistent, that people, it's, an, it's a not a scary place. It's a, they are removed from their body. They, they see that they are not just their bodies. Mm. They're leaving their bodies and therefore they're not just their body. That's a common description. Common description is not that it's not a scary place at all, that in some ways they're even attracted to it. Mm. Sometimes they feel like they got sent back, like they had to go back, you know? So that's just remarkably consistent among people who have these NDE, near-death experiences. And even folks who don't cross over and come back to tell me about it. I will say that all the fear and the angsty bits around dying, that's mostly for the living, the people who have to keep living, Mm. you know? And I think a lot of us imagine, when we have to imagine some future state, we tend to imagine it as a horrible, scary place. When in fact, when a dying person, when it actually comes down to their them actually finally dying, very often there's not a lot of uh, sorrow in the air or fear in the air. It's like, that's that's for us neurotic people who have to keep living. We're the ones who have to live with that fear. If people are actually doing the dying, I often don't smell a lick of fear around them. When you worked at Zen Hospice, they had a beautiful ritual mm-hmm. when people died. Can mm-hmm. you take us through that? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was one of my favorite things about that place, which was very simple. That when So it was Zen Hospice had a, had a guest house. That's what we called it. It was a house, six-bed little hospice house where people came to live until they died. And uh, we would this, this ritual was that so when someone died, you know, you call the funeral home and they come and retrieve the body. Um, but in between waiting for the funeral home to come, we would get the person, you know, in a stretcher. Well, sorry, let me back up. When the person died before the funeral home came, we would all quickly get some flowers one way or another. We'd go buy some flowers, pick some flowers, and we'd pick them apart in just, just the petals. And we'd put them in a bunch of bowls. And then when the funeral guys would come, they would put the body in the stretcher and they'd be wheeling the person out and we'd pause at the door and we would uh, gather around whoever staff was on call, whoever was working, volunteers, staff, and then also, of course, family members, anybody who wanted to participate. Um, And very often it was really beautiful. The funeral home guys began to participate too. It was really gorgeous. So we'd all just gather around, take a minute or two. It didn't, it wasn't, it didn't take much energy at all. We'd gather around the body. Someone might say a few words, share a laugh, like a memory about this person. Sometimes sit in silence. Sometimes family would just weep and wail. Sometimes we'd sing a song, whatever. There was no, nothing magic except that we paused. Mm. 
And then we would sprinkle flower petals on the body before they zipped up the body bag and off they went. And that's it. It was, it was that simple. And it took a few minutes, but it was the most profound. It was so beautiful. Sarah, you would just, just the scene around these, these, these would, you would not forget experiencing it, even though there was not much to it. And what it did it had a way of closing out that chapter right before literally the zipper goes up over their face, right? You, you feel this one, this body is done, but you are now welcoming that life to be free, to live in you, to celebrate their experience, whatever it is, but to touch it with beauty. And that's the final image as they go out the door. And, you know, that is just a stunning way to sort of send someone off into their grief, the family off mm-hmm. in their grief with images of flower petals and song. And that instead of the typical death in an ICU or in a hospital, which tubes coming out, bells and whistles, syringes everywhere, nothing sacred about it, nothing beautiful about it. And that we know has a way of adding trauma to family members' grief. That's trauma to caregivers, professional physicians and nurses grief too. So just those flower petals had a way of shifting the narrative from one of tragedy and trauma Mm -hmm. to one of beauty and life moving and life going on. Beautiful. BJ, Mm -hmm. where do you think we go when we die? Mm. So... Over the years, I've, I've just become a devout agnostic. Mm. I was raised Episcopalian, but I, I don't know. I, I've, I've, I've become much more enamored with mystery and, and of not knowing. I mean, I'm not interested in willful ignorance. I mean, we, I'm interested in knowing what we can know. But the truth is, there's just a bunch of stuff we don't know. And, you know, so I just love sitting with that mystery because that provokes in me curiosity, humility, you know, openness. So I hang out in that zone. And then, and if I really am, so, so I, my answer to question is where do we go? I don't know. And I don't, and I, and I, and I just love that. Mm. I love that. That, that, That's a comfort that's become comforting to me, especially. And so then you ask, well, what do we know? I mean, if, if we let ourselves think about it, you know, from it's an observable empirical truth. We know that a body, you know, if you don't, pump it with formaldehyde and put it in a steel coffin. If you put a body into the ground, it dissolves into the ground. We know that there's an energy transfer. Mm. That's just, that's an observation. That's not a belief. We know that happens. We know that a person like, my sister died 20 years ago. She lives on in me because of what the shared experiences we had because of the emotional residue that she brought to the world. Like she has immortality that way. Mm. You know, so even if there's nothing more profound going on that what we can observe with our own two eyes that's plenty for me you know this idea that i could become a blade of grass and that i live on and people i've touched that's friggin gorgeous and if so if my consciousness goes on to become another person another animal whatever that's just gravy to me that's extra fascinating but what i can observe actually happening is plenty fascinating for me the number one thing people were scared of is dying something that you obviously deal with every day how as as those who are obviously living Mm -hmm. do we best deal with the notion of death Mm. so well and this gets at a question you asked earlier too which i think it's really important to distinguish if your fear is of of dying versus of being no more like Mm. a fear of dying 
that when my patients tell me they're afraid of dying, that's one I can talk them through. In fact, because it usually means they're afraid of the suffering yes. they imagine has to happen during the dying process. But thanks to hospice and doula work and just medicine in general, there's a lot we can do to push back on the pain at the end of life. Not We can't take it all away, but the idea, you don't have to imagine a miserable dying experience. It doesn't have to be a miserable experience. So that's just room for plenty of reassurance and a little bit of advanced planning and some uh, skillful use of medications, you know. But the fear, if your fear is of being dead, the fear of being no more, the fear of non-existence, you know, that's one where I just pull up a seat with my patients go, hey, I don't know either, man, but let's, let's, let's walk together. Let's go look into that abyss together. Let's see what we can see together. That's me. That's me. I, my job is to be fellow human and sidle up next to them, not pretend to bestow them with some certainty where it doesn't exist. Mm. Rather, I can accompany them in the uncertainty. That, that seems to be the salve. Um, so, so the, that, and that's also the stuff of religion, of song, of philosophy. This is where things get fascinating. How do we humans imagine a world without us in it? That's like a short circuit of our brain. It's a very hard thing to do. So the last point to make on your question here would be, I do think it's worth our while to get used to this notion and to begin having a relationship with the idea of being no more. However, we can, mm. whether it's through letting ourselves sit with losses along with like little deaths, loss of a relationship, loss of a body part, loss of keys, loss of a job. Those are little deaths. You can practice your dying with those deaths in a way. You can get familiar or comfortable with the terrain of losing, of letting go. Um, so those are ways, you know, like now it's autumn in the U.S. I get to see all the leaves falling from the trees. Mm. That's a way to practice. That's a moment to practice the idea of death. So those are all ways to kind of get into it and close the gap between yourself and this fearful thing of non-being. And then lastly, whenever I do that with people, I also make the point, yes, practice your deaths with these kinds of exercises and meditations to get comfortable with this bigger piece of reality, but also give yourself time and space to be in real time when it is your actual dying time, when you are actually coming to the end of your life, not just thinking about it leave a literal asterisk there because you may, I've been around deaths of a gazillion times. I, I, I might freak out when I'm actually dying. I may lose my shit. I may be screaming and yelling and kicking and screaming. And I don't want that to feel like a failure. I just want to leave little space for, for parts of life that I can't yet imagine. Mm. And that may happen to me at the end of my life. Would you want to live forever? No. <laughs> I have a I have a very firm no on that one. Um, you know, I suppose we could make that, you know, you can talk about that in terms of resource allocation. What would we do with the planet filled with people and all this stuff? Like, um, I, I'm less, so that those are real arguments to be made of a real argument for death, essentially, mm. is because we just don't have time and space and resources for, you know, infinite numbers of creatures. Um, so that's all true. But I, I also, like we've been talking, I just find it too enriching. It's too powerful, the notion that I die, my ego, this life dies, but my body, as we've talked about, will keep going. You know, other people uh, will keep, take up the mantle. And when we talk about end of life, I think we should say, no, end of my life, end of your life, but life otherwise keeps going. 
you know, it's hard to even make a case that death really exists. All I know death is, is, is a big change. That's all I can assign my name to. I, I'm not sure there's anything but life underneath all of this, just in various forms, you know, but what do I know? What's the best advice you've ever been given? Well, one that I use a lot, uh, and I don't know if I gave it, someone gave me this advice or I read it on a bumper sticker, but I, <laughs> I get a lot of mileage out of the phrase, don't believe everything you think. Yeah, um, yes. I find that to be a very useful one. Someone who's sort of hyper-educated, who, who believes in the power of the mind and the intellect to think your way through anything. No, I find it very useful to remember there's all sorts of, all sorts of life and world beyond my thoughts. And just because I think something doesn't make it true, mm. even if I could be so convinced of it. And, and there again, I, I love that thought. It gets me to the deeper truths of my body, of sensations, of feeling, all that. Uh, so yeah, don't believe everything you think. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Mm. I'm still working on this. This Somehow I still find a way to think that everything's my fault. Yeah. I don't know. It's like a, I just can't help but blame myself for just about anything you can think of. I, it's like a, it's like a, some hamster wheel that just spun out of control mm. and it's like stuck on a thousand RPM. I just, I can't, I can hear again, I can think my way out of that one to some degree, but I'm left with this residual feeling that I, that I, I have this feeling I should be apologizing to everybody all the time. <laughs> and I don't even know why. I don't know where it comes from. But I certainly, I think I have encouraged it earlier in my life as a way of being hard on myself, as a way of levering myself, as a way of getting more from myself, trying harder the next time, learning and on endlessly learning, you know, sort of. I think I've used this impulse to blame myself as a way to get more out of myself. But now I'm done with that. That's a little, that's an expensive burn. And there are other ways for me to try. There are other ways for me to learn without hating myself or just thinking that I'm to blame for everything. So, so that's a big one for me. When was the last time that you cried? Oh, sadly, a long time. I, I, I have, I love crying. I find it, the times I've cried in my life have been some of the most cathartic, mm. just feels so good. I noticed this, there was, I was recounting this story this morning when I was in the hospital, one of the nurses I, to whom I was particularly close, her name was Joy. And one day, Joy, it was maybe a month in, Joy came into my hospital room and she was just pissed. She was just like throwing things around, kind of giving me a hard time. And I was like, geez, I mean, she was just super moody. And she's like, I'm like, what's wrong, Joy? She's like, I'm sick of your shit. You know, you're not taking this seriously. You pretend like nothing happened. I don't buy it. I'm not buying your bullshit. I don't, you know, she was just needling me. And, and it was one of the kindest things, anything everyone's ever done to me. Cause she got, she pushed me so hard. I finally, like something broke free and I just started weeping. And it was the greatest feeling I have ever had in my life. It was one of the what was shocking was back then I was in a lot of physical pain all the time, some amount of physical pain. But while those tears were flowing, I had no pain. It was the coolest, most amazing. And so I say that I'm so just, to prove, I, I love, I'm a big fan of crying, but for whatever reason, I really struggle to get there. It's almost sometimes I'll feel it, the tears coming and it's almost like I get so excited and happy that I'm about to cry that it shuts down the tears. It's the weirdest thing. So in answer to your question, so 
When was the last time I cried? Mm. I'm not sure I remember. And, I, and that is a sad statement to me. Mm. What yeah. is your greatest hope for society today? Mm. I might say something like that we'll learn all to, that we'll learn to love and big, big things like that. But it's a little nondescript. And what I think, what I think the world in particular really needs right now is to learn how to grieve, mm. like how to metabolize and come get real with ourselves and come to that truth, the truth of loss, the truth that we're not going to get everything and everyone back, the truth that we can screw things up, the truth that things end. I, right now I look at, especially in the West here in the U.S., we're acting like these big, dumb teenagers and that it's a win-loss proposition and you're either a winner or you're a loser and all this stuff. That's just a bunch of malarkey. And it's cruel because it makes you, again, like we talked about with death and illness, like those are, losing is a very normal thing to do. In fact, you're not going to get through life and not lose. So why do we demonize something so natural and normal? It drives me nuts. And we keep this part of ourselves, these tender parts of ourselves, this intimate, vulnerable parts of ourselves at bay. And what we do, what we're doing is we're keeping love at bay. We're keeping life at bay. So, so grief is this metabolic process that humans have that, that can help us digest loss and, and be true to that. And then while opening our eyes to all that, that remains and to all that we still have, I can't think of a more useful muscle to exercise in the world right now than that. What is a life of greatness to you? Mm. A life of greatness would be that I'm able to be with my entire self, even the embarrassing bits, even the weak bits, that I can love life so much that it includes death. That's a Rilke quote, that I can love myself so much that it includes all my foibles and warts and all the junk and that I could actually sit with all that and not wish it were otherwise. That would, if I can get to that place and hang out in that zone for more than a couple minutes at a time, I would figure that I was, a, that I had achieved something great. BJ Miller, you are a true gem in this world. Thank you so much for talking today. It's such a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. For more inspiration and wisdom, I would love you to join me and my community on Instagram at a Life of Greatness podcast. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, and watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. Love what you heard? Then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave a five star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast. Download the new Listener app now and listen for free. Listener.